Hi guys, I am Chris Negline, one of the co-hosts of the Nerds Travaganza podcast. I'm here with Will Heimarch, who is an up-and-coming game designer, and uh, we're th- hoping that he'll give us some time before he blows up and he's forgotten all about <laughs> us little people. So, tell us, off the start, how did you get into role-playing and how did you become a professional? Oh yeah, uh, that's a great question. So. The first time that I played any RPG that was actually a packaged role-playing game, as opposed to just playing imaginary games and cops and robbers or Federation and Klingons, whatever we were playing, um, was a session of D&D the day before I started junior high school. It was a friend of mine's birthday, and it was a sleepover, and I was super nervous because we were playing with some kids that I wasn't... They, they weren't big fans of me, and I were not big fans of them, but we weren't... We could be at the same birthday party, so it wasn't terrible. But uh, uh, by the end of that first session two things had changed I think kind of forever and one of them was that me and this uh, uh, other kid had become very good friends because we had learned the value of healing magic and the value of, of a sturdy blade and uh, uh, the other big breakthrough for me was I had seen the rest of my life in game form whatever I'm doing I'm always still going to be doing RPGs uh, 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 professionally to some extent because I can't shake it. It's like going to the gym for me because you can probably tell it's the only kind of gym that I go to. But is that uh, uh, I start feeling cagey and edgy if I don't get to play uh, after about two weeks. Um, and it's not even like it's whether it's playing or GMing, I prefer to GM, but is that uh, discovering that, that conversation, that building of a world through conversation, that, that collaboration of imaginations um, was just such the right kind of social salve that I needed to come out of my shell a little bit and, and learn how to meet people. Um, without giving up the fact that I would much rather talk about the Federation and Klingons, especially at that age, uh, or to talk about elves and orcs than I would to have conversations about real things at that age. And so it's, it's, it's given me a skill set that it makes much more comfortable for me to be able to talk about anything. Um, uh, and so, but it was literally, it was that day we played the, uh, uh, the Saturday night before school on Monday. Mm-hmm. And then I was DMing, I think, Wednesday. I was just immediately said, "All right, well, I'm doing this now. This is this is this is I found the thing," uh, and so from that point, I played all through junior high and high school, variety of groups, lots of homebrew systems, lots of pu- published systems, Star Wars D6, uh, a little bit of Call of Cthulhu, um, uh, lots of various variations and home hacks of D and D, and then uh, uh, moved on to things like Castle Falkenstein as a game that I always like to mention because I was a, I was a sucker for that game when it came out in a big way. I really dug that game, I still do, and. Uh, Moved on to, uh, in college, almost entirely games that I was building myself to the point that I was not, I was doing that instead of doing most of my homework. Uh, so that didn't go great, but I learned so much just by hand. We had two or three groups sometimes playing in the same universe in the, kind of the same campaign. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a great education in world building and in learning how to interact with a variety of imaginations and keep continuity and build worlds that were engaging for people. Uh, and that turned into uh, pitching to magazines and, and publishers and saying... I want to write for RPGs and getting turned rightfully at the time that I was pitching turned down a few times, uh, uh, more or less for saying, "Well, you, you don't have anything published. We don't know what you're capable of. I'm not going to. We're not just going to buy an RPG from you until we see it." Um, and uh, and again, rightfully so. But uh, uh, that turned into uh, submitting during the D20 boom uh, at the turn of the century uh, to Atlas Games. I had a couple of things published, and then I joined the staff at, at Atlas as a. Uh, a little bit of a staff writer and some staff design, and, and also I was the guy who took stuff to the post office and everything. And so I started by working my way up from, from that position. I was the, the feng shui line developer back in the day. And then moved on to uh, White Wolf in 2004. I was there three-ish, three years, I think. 
Um, went back to freelancing. I've been kind of freelancing off and on that whole time in there for various publications. And I've been uh, an indie independent designer and publisher and freelancer uh, since then and since before then. So my goal is to write one of everything. Um, I'd like, I have some comics uh, uh, in the works. Um, I'm writing some stories for Munchkin from Boom Studios. The first one of those just came out in issue 12. That's, that's got my name on it. Um, I've uh, done a couple of, uh, I've done a variety of short stories. Uh, I've written some screenplays that have been, never been, oh, I hope will never be produced because they're not, they're my first efforts and they're not very good, but I'm learning. And uh, I've done a lot of video game writing and, and things like that. So uh, marketing materials, plays, poetry. Uh, but gaming is the one that I keep coming back to as far as my, if, if all their forms of writing were to no longer work for, for work, if I couldn't write for a living, I would still be writing for gaming. Well, as a quick sideline, all the, I believe every company you've mentioned is out there on the shelf here at the Adventure Game Store. Absolutely. And uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, so my current project is a, uh, uh, with great and endearing thanks to all of my backers, a grossly overdue uh, Kickstarter project that has turned out so much better, not just because of the, the support from Kickstarter and the, from all the backers of Kickstarter, but from their patience. Because uh, uh, we, it's a game called Project Dark, which is a self-adventure role-playing game uh, for one to four players and a GM. But so it can be played one to one, or it can be played, uh, it gets a little heistier if you add more players. So it mm -hmm. starts off as being like a splinter cell or a thief or what have you. And then as you add players, it just gets a little bit more like leverage or, 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 or whatnot. And it's got three different settings. There's a fantasy setting, a kind of near future setting, and a far future setting. Mm -hmm. um, and they all use the same core rules. And it's a, a card-driven role-playing game. It uses regular playing cards instead of dice for the players. And so there's a deck-building element where you put cards from a regular poker deck back into your deck mm -hmm. as you level up. So you're like, oh, so I'm going to buy the Ten of Clubs, so I have that now, and I know it's in there, and it, might, and it will come up. Um, but it's, it's there's no like a, a additional buying component or anything. It's just a regular deck of poker cards. So you start with some of them, and then you add in face cards, and they all have special abilities for just your character. So your jack of clubs and my jack of clubs might do two different things. Uh, but then as you uh, uh, play that, we we through the stretch goals and such, we're able to fund a uh, original deck. So we have a poker deck that's being painted by Rachel Kahn, which is a gorgeous. Oh, I've seen set the of art. cards. In fact, right? funny enough that you mentioned Castle Falkenstein. I, yeah. I can tell you, I got it in my notes that yeah, I was like. Those cards look a lot like Castle of Falkenstein for some reason. Part of it definitely, right, is that Falkenstein put a, uh, was kind of the, the eye-opener for me, at least personally, of what other kind of ready-to-use or unusual kind of components can I find and use for games in addition to or instead of dice or, or whatever. And so I've been kind of chipping away at this deck-building idea for years. Um, and it, it was one of those things where it took me months to realize that the, uh, the, the stealth game I wanted to do and the card game that I wanted to do were the same game. Uh, but when I finally put them together, it sort of make a lot of sense because one of the things that, that the, the deck mechanic does in Dark mm -hmm. um, is you you like on a D twenty. If you're like me, you know there's a twenty on the die, but you will never see it. It's never going to come up because you're not going to roll often enough for it to come up. Or you're going to roll like I do, and you're just not going to ever see the eighteen, the nineteen, or the twenty. You're not that lucky. And so uh, in Dark, you know the ten of clubs is in there, for example. You know that your that your ace of spades is in there. And so you can plan ahead without having to plan out a whole mission, but you can say, okay, so we're going to move this way. I'm going to hold on to my ace so I can use it as kind of my my, my critical hit when it comes up. Because you have a hand of cards based on the, the more hidden your character is, the more cards you can hold. Mm -hmm. So the more stealthy you stay, the better your plans hold up and the more your ability to kind of predict and respond works out. So uh, I like it because it's a little, as a player, a little more, I don't want to say necessarily more rewarding, but it's differently rewarding because you can take heart in the fact that sooner or later the, the 20 is going to come up on that die. Um, and so it creates a situation 
for the player that naturally breeds a little bit of confidence and has a little bit of the kind of uh, a thrill of competence and seeing characters do things really, really well so that you feel like you're a better thief mm-hmm. than you would if you had to rely solely on, you know, uh, uh, rolling over a 10 on a 20-sided die, for example. Um, which is not to say, for example, there are games that, I mean, I love a wide variety of games despite my luck. And uh, I play a lot of I play a lot of Rogues and Thieves in D&D as well. But uh, the dynamic is very, very different just in the same way that I, I love that Rogues are com- can be good combatants and good investigators and stuff in D&D. Uh, but by just by turning the whole game so that we know that everybody's playing a thief in some degree or, or somebody's playing everybody's skullduggerous in some degree uh, changes the focus a little bit so that suddenly if I want to play a stealth game I want to sneak through the building you're not just waiting around for me to, to miss a roll and then we can storm in right we all have kind of the same motive and so part of that is just in the same way that in, every, in D&D everybody has a base attack bonus or has a natural kind of combat ability to some extent because we all because combat comes up and we all want to survive it in dark everybody has a natural uh, a, a certain number of cards that are already in the deck and everybody has a natural knack for thievery and mm-hmm. stealth that means that the game is inherently about that in a way that makes it easier for us to understand we're just not going to consider the possibility of we're not going to plan for what if we were to just storm the building and kick the door down let's, that's not what the game's about um, in, 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 thiefer, er, in, in, in games like Thief where you could play the video game where you could get in over your head and then still get lucky and kill everybody in Dark the characters are very squishy um, and it's possible to build a character that will survive a lot of punishment, but by default they don't. So getting caught is really bad. So so it sounds like to me that you uh, definitely want to have the rules and the setting reflect each other. Yeah, exactly. Because sometimes, I mean, one of, my, uh, one of the comments I've always had with the, the D&D magic system hmm. is that it in no way really reflects what would be the metaphysics of the setting itself. Right, uh, certainly depending on which D and D setting it is. Right, it, that there, that some settings feel like a better fit for the D and D magic system than others, and even though they all have the D and D logo on them or have over the exactly. years, yeah. Um, for me, it's very important, and, this, and it's especially important in stealth as a genre, which is not very well represented in, in RPGs, but in which uh, because the player controls so much of the pacing in a stealth game, right? They decide how fast to move. They decide when they see the NPCs, if they sneak up on somebody, or if they sit and watch them and wait for them to have a conversation mm-hmm. and let them talk. As opposed to in a in a combat oriented game, where the first time you meet the, the the an NPC, it's likely that you're either going to you might try to talk your way past them, but it's it's overt. The NPC knows you're there and you know that they're there, and so the things that happen are based on seeing an NPC. For example, maybe at their fightiest moment, I meet an orc and they want to kill me, so we fight. If you sneak up on somebody and you see what orcs are like when they don't know you're around, suddenly the environment and the natural state of the setting is not only uh, uh, differently important, but it becomes broader. Because the notion is we might see orcs at their best. We might see uh, an NPC when they are uh, afraid that I might be there, but they don't know that I'm already in the room with them. Or they think, oh, yeah, let this, let the, let them come and try to steal the diamond tonight. I'm going to, I'll kill that thief, no problem. And whatever it is, you get to see different facets and aspects of an NPC beyond, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to, right now, let's fight. Um, and so as that dynamic changes, the environment comes through. We have a thing in Dark which are called eavesdrops, turning the, the, the verb into a noun which are little handouts that the GM gives out that, uh, that are written for the adventures that are conversations between the NPCs. And if you have multiple players, the players can take the parts and read them. And it's a, a mechanism that on the one hand rewards the players for, for eavesdropping on the environment as opposed to just killing everybody outright. They gain secrets and information and they find out where the keys are hidden and those sorts of things. Uh, but it also engages the players, it rewards them for doing that by saying the players have the right in most eavesdrops, there are a handful of exceptions in a couple of the adventures that are coming out, but is uh, the player can say, okay, at this moment between lines three and four, that's when I strike. 
and the player therefore is making a dramatic decision which is so they never even have the back half of this conversation i as a player know what it would have been and we understand that obviously my character doesn't learn that information but i can pick dramatic timing in a way that's difficult with a more randomized system so the game is is favoring the player in a lot of ways that says uh join me in the pacing join me in the portrayal of the setting um your characters are competent but they're not unstoppable uh but that the player gets to make a lot of choices that might be randomly determined in some other games and part of that is designed again to to make the setting translate to the player at, at the the pace that the player needs it to so that in D D it could be hard or in any combat game any game where you're fighting in a, uh, in a whether it's a gun battle in a in shadow runner or you're fighting in in D D. To stop and say, can I get a new description of the room? It just feels contrary right to the pacing. But a player who can say, I'm going to, before I strike, I want to double check, how, what are the windows like in here? And those sorts of things. Uh, means that, in a similar way that the gumshoe system is so great at, that it creates a situation where the, the player's skills say how much information they get out of the world. Well, I'm an expert in the occult, or I'm an expert in theology. I'm an expert in archaeology. What do, how does this room appear to me versus how it might appear to my partner? my accomplice who is all knowledgeable in art and breaking bones uh and so that means that the character intersects with the game world in a very tangible way and that it's not a chance that they will intersect with the game world it's that you can say well you're an expert in archaeology so when you're in here you know that that all the things in here are fakes the, all this stuff is not the real treasure this room is a sham so either the, everything either their whole lives are a sham and they don't have the treasure you were looking for or they're trying to outsmart you and leveling with the player that way and giving that kind of information i think it helps convey the confidence that their characters can have and a certainty about the way they interact with the world that makes the setting helps the setting to come alive. All right. So, and the big spin with the gunshoe system mm -hmm. is where, like in D and D, mm -hmm. you have a perception roll. Right. If a perception roll isn't made, then that clue doesn't get delivered. Right. And if the GM hasn't thought it through, suddenly the whole adventure is just kind of sitting in a holding pattern until he figures out he's got to put the clue somewhere else, or Make another roll. Right. Or, Keep rolling so, until you get a 10 or higher. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. then why did you do it in the first place? And then with the gumshoe system, if you've got the right skill and you're in the right room, boom, there's the clue. Right. And that right explains there. a lot about the character and the world, right? Because the character knows things, knew certain things about the world when they walked into that room, even though we as players didn't know that information. And that's a vital thing to me about making characters and, and, and game worlds live together in a really fruitful way is to remember that the characters live in that world all the time. So they know things about the world that we don't. So there are times when we want to make decisions and it's like, well, my character is smarter than I am. They're a professional at this. So why are they going to make a, the kind of stupid mistake I would make? <laughs> and this is an area where I, and I, that I, which I think Gumshoe is great at and is that uh, importable to any RPG is that notion that don't roll for something unless you want to explore both, either six, both success and failure. And then Gumshoe is kind of built on the notion that failure is just boring on these kind of actions. So we're just going to, it's about positioning rather than chance. Uh, and that, that's that, and that befitted Dark very well too, I should say, which which has a skill system that is sort of a, it's sort of uh, uh, it's definitely post Gumshoe. It is, a, it is a system that works because I, I admire Gumshoe the way that I do, uh, and I've done some writing. For, we did a, I did Eternal Lies for Pelgrane and and so forth. But uh, uh, is that the ability to get into a building and say, well, I can use my skill to understand to, to puzzle out where they've hidden the gem mm -hmm. if I can get into the Duke's uh, uh, library. So suddenly, whereas in Gumshoe, it's it's an uh, investigative process to find out, can I get to the right place for this, for this skill to reveal the clue automatically? Uh, Dark just puts a little more emphasis on how how do I get there? How hard is it to reach there? Makes it a little more adventurous and exciting to put yourself in the room when you're not supposed to be there. You're not a detective, officially. You don't have the right to be in that room. 
but since anybody who's sneaking around a, a castle or a manor or a space station or whatever it is um, has to play detective a little bit because you can't just ask for directions. Mm-hmm. So you want to suss out what's going on. So that gumshoe dynamic works very, very well, somewhat ironically, for both the detectives of, mo- of so many gumshoe games mm-hmm. and the criminals that they would ostensibly be trying to, to, to capture. Um, and there's actually a little bit in, in Dark, the GM sometimes between sessions plays the role of what's called the capital I, the inspector. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is essentially the GM is playing a gumshoe game while the players are creating clues to find out what the, the inspector can pick up about the player characters after the job. What do they leave behind that the inspector says, look, I have this red hair, I have this uh, uh, eyelash, I'm going to take it to uh, a scryer here in town, I'm going to take it to a warlock or somebody who's going to tell me whose hair this is. And so the inspector is playing gumshoe in the wake of the player characters playing dark to a certain extent. And speaking of Castle Falconstein, that mm-hmm. reminds me because one of the one of the best bits of GM advice they had was have the GM play the villain. Think of mm-hmm. what the villain is going to go through. It's not like you're planning the adventure and the players are. It's not for the players. It's for here's the villain. Here's his through line of what he's planning, right. and where do the players intersect there, and how does that all fall out? Right. What happens if the players don't show up? Exactly. I'm a big believer in that one is the notion that the world wants the characters in the world aside from the NPCs, mm-hmm. aside from the PCs, aren't waiting around for the PCs to do something. They have their lives going on, and they have plans. And even if you're whether you are a occult investigator in the 1930s, whether you're slaying vampires and Knights of Black Agents, whether you are uh, uh, hunting Dracula himself, I should point out, nice black agents, or whether you are sneaking into a house in some fantasy medieval landscape. Uh, uh, whatever you're doing, everybody else in the setting is hoping maybe they're not. They're hoping maybe you'll do something else. And so when those two things collide, and we find out which way things are going to go. That's a guaranteed creator of of plot, if not necessarily of story. Uh, I'm a big believer when it comes to uh, role playing games that you don't, you can't really pre plot, but you can pre motivate a character, an NPC. And motive plot is just a series of colliding motives. It's a series of decisions and fallouts. Uh, uh, and then a story is how that is told and how that is structured. And, and one of the great examples, of course, is uh, the movie Memento, right, which has mm-hmm. a very linear plot. It's just played backwards. Um, and and uh, uh, sometimes uh, when watching, you can feel like it's a very convoluted plot. But uh, uh, Nolan himself has said, the director has said, points out that it's a pretty clear plot. This person makes this decision, which causes this person to make this decision, which causes this person to shoot that person, which causes this person to get arrested or whatever. I'm not spoiling the movie uh, because none of that is actually how it works in the movie. But then what they do is they just play it backwards. They play the scenes in reverse order. And so the storytelling is very ornate and it's very complicated because you have to keep track of the story in reverse. But the plot is very simple. And we often conflate them, but I think it's especially in gaming, in, in RPG play, it's important to appreciate and kind of help master the the difference between the two of them uh because you can create situations where the players are completely in control of the plot and they and the NP, you just say well look the villain is going to it's going to conquer the world unless somebody stops them and fortunately here come the player characters and i don't know if they're going to stop them or not i didn't pre-decide that but i have a sense of the theme and the atmosphere i have a sense of what kind of imagery i want to bring up but i don't know if i'm going to be bringing up this idea i have of you know white doves flying away when somebody is slain in a duel i don't know if those doves are going to are going to uh, uh, represent the spirit of a dead player character or a dead villain. But I have an idea that I think would be dramatic, and I may have to jettison it during play. I may have to make up something else depending on how the plot goes. But that it's a matter of, I know what kind of decisions the villain's going to make, and I know what kind of, I'm going to wait and find out what decisions the players are going to make, and not try to necessarily prescribe for the players, because they're kind of the great randomizer in a way. And so, uh, even though I might have ideas like, I think I could provoke them into fighting the villain in the scene, I could be wrong. You know, there are, no plan survives contact with the player characters. So. No, no, never. 
So, funny enough, yeah. Feng Shui 2 just came out, too. Yeah, yeah, which I did not work on. I know really, you didn't work yeah. on, but, you know, yeah. you were part of that line. What do you think of... Uh... Oh, God. I, the, the only, I have only one, and it's a fairly substantial... I, I don't know if I should be saying this. I have one fairly substantial problem with Feng Shui 2. And it's not actually a problem with Feng Shui 2, per se, as much as it's what it's very different from what I would have done when I was running Feng Shui, which is I would have... Um, let me do it when I when I was the Feng Shui developer. I would have wanted to be a part of it, um, and that's really the only. Uh, I, I as as an admirer, I was a fan of Feng Shui, mm -hmm. um, but I hadn't played it as much as I had played like hacks of it mm -hmm. uh, uh, before I started, you know, pitching for writing games and stuff. So I had a lot of experience pulling Feng Shui apart, and then you see how Robin does it for the sequel, mm -hmm. how he actually reinvigorates and what he tweaks and what he doesn't adjust, and where you know where he twists and tightens the bolts in that game and I suddenly wonder when when I'm gonna when when my third eye gets to open as a developer and I get to say <laughs> oh, of course that's how you do it uh, it's such a it's it's such a, and it's a in addition to being a beautiful book and just a, just a great product and I love the idea it's it's a little bit contentious but they've essentially said that 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 line is complete with the Kickstarter done and what goes in the stores they don't need to do source books because you can play hours and hours and hours and hours of the feng shui too and I don't know if they'll change their mind um, but I like the idea that Part of the beauty of feng shui is that it kind of has a lot of arc to it like you can see into the future of feng shui because of its timelines and its time periods but uh but there's no need to necessarily extend and dig a whole, a whole lot deeper into the individual npcs the individual factions and such because the players are just going to come in and wreck them all anyway so respond more and the game i think is very well built for uh it's a great example of learning a lot from post feng shui games without forgetting its feng shui-ness without without trying to completely revamp feng shui. Uh, I really wanted to do a second edition when I was at Atlas, for example. And, and, they, and, and uh, the, the powers that be, which I, should, which I can name happily as John Nephew and Robin Laws, had said, it's not time. And, and in hindsight, they were absolutely right. Because one, if, if I had been able to do feng shui too, it would not have been the edition we got. In part just because we, there are games that, we, that came out in between that would have changed. Um, and it was, what I wanted to do, it was not necessarily a super engaging time for omnivorous gamers in RPGs. We were still playing a lot, D20 was, was still booming, mm -hmm. um, and we were playing a lot of long-term campaigns in a different way that now I feel like RPG players are a little more omnivorous, which is great, because it means that if a game comes out, they can approach it like a board game and say, we're gonna play two sessions of this thing, and we'll play it again in a year or whatever, but it's not like they're committing to a six-month or a year-long campaign with something. So they're a little more willing to experiment with new games and try out stuff that has very different rule sets, and feng shui benefits from that because Mechanically, there aren't a lot of games that are terribly like feng shui, and uh, uh, and it, so it comes out in a time when people are, are much more hungry and curious about different types of role playing games. So, uh, uh, the only kind of credit that I can take is that I agreed it was a good idea, um, and I was in a focus group for it at Metatopia, um, in which all I essentially did was uh, applaud the direction that they were going in because they, I was so happy with the with the the what they were doing with NPCs and how they were revising gun sticks and, and so forth. So yeah. So when it comes to to the dark, yeah. How do you see that being played at the table? Is it a long campaign, or is it two, or either or? It's uh, well, it's definitely it plays very well single shot. I've run it most of what I've run in actual games logged, and I ran the numbers on this. Uh, I don't think it's changed too much since the last time I ran the numbers on it. But the, uh, is that most of the games I've played have been one shots of it, teaching people the game at Origins, teaching the people the game at Gen Con, playing it with one shot people in uh, uh, Chicago. But, um, but the number of hours logged is about 50-50 because I've played a number of campaigns with my playtest groups and with uh, uh, some two- and three-part campaigns with little uh, 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 local groups and stuff. And it's been um, – the game, and this is one of the big things that actually expanded since the Kickstarter was originally it was designed to be very mission-driven. So you might play three or four kind of uh, uh, scenarios 
and then and then good you had a good time and you can keep playing or you don't have to keep playing or whatever but what that led to was the situation that that the mission driven aspect of play was pretty strong I, I was pretty happy with it but it was there were still things to be added in and make, made clearer but the campaign play wasn't being adequately supported and so that's a big part of what we were doing the latter half of last year I say we um, that's both it's it's lateness and everything is my fault but is that uh, uh, what I was working on was adding the campaign dimensions and what that ended up being was uh, making it so that you're still playing mission-based games so that it's very easy to break a campaign for a couple of weeks or a couple of months and come back to it. Um, in part because when you, then you, you with the deck-building component, right, you make your character's deck, and then you put it in a box, and, well, there's my character. I know where to find him. Um, and, you know, you don't necessarily lose the sheet or whatever it is. I mean, there are character sheets. But um, when you come back, they just tell you what your jack does or your queen does, that sort of thing. When you come back to the game and you say, I want to see, explore the fallout of, of the fact that I stole this this magic jewel or something. Uh, there's a lot more tools now. There are a lot more tools in the book for the the narrator or the GM to be able to say uh, wh who else in the city has a reaction for it. What we do, for example, there's a there's a process we do when we build out the treasures for the campaign, which is uh, who has it, who mm -hmm. wants it, what will they pay for it, um, who will notice it's missing, and when. And essentially blowback is what it really is. And so uh, with those sort of things in mind, you can just very easily, and then you just sort of assign the treasures to the to the world map that we have to the city map, um, and you can say they can. And now the, the players can go off and steal stuff in any order they want, mm -hmm. and you can give them a certain sense of this one is going to be really hard to get. So maybe you don't want to do it first because you're not you don't have all the cards in your deck yet. Um, but they can go off and steal them in any way they want, and then as that happens, they the players can what we call casing the joint. It's the investigative portion of the game, in which they can investigate. Uh, well, first I want to know where this thing is. Okay, sure. I want to know roughly what I can get for it. Of course, that makes sense. And I want to know who is going to want it back and how mad they're going to be that it's gone? Those sort of questions. Um, and so they can spend some time asking those questions about multiple items uh, and then choose and say, well, this one seems to have a good cost-benefit ratio. Nobody's going to really care if we take it, but it's going to be worth something to us. So we'll start with that one. And if you take it, uh, the GM may know because there's a column that the players don't ever get to see for each item, which is the notion of uh, essentially the fallout, the blowback, which is, is, are there people who secretly are saying, Yes, I want that item. I can't pay for it. So once it hits the market or hits the the the, the fences, I'm just going to kill to get it. Or they'd say, "Great, I'm going to I want to I'm going to hire then somebody to steal it again." And so the players say, "Wait, are we? Is this ruby that we're stealing the same ruby we stole two weeks ago?" Yeah, because lots of people want it. It's a magic ruby. Say, so are we just building up a giant enemies list of people who are going to want to kill us for stealing their ruby? Yeah, because you're <laughs> thieves. That's that's let's not lie to ourselves. This is what the this is what the life is in this city. And so. Uh, uh, now there's a much stronger uh, campaign structure for it, both in terms of what the investigator can do to follow the players around the city, mm -hmm. when the investigator does or does not know what the characters are up to, um, when they can establish, uh, for example, uh, somebody steals the Mona Lisa, let's say, or mm -hmm. a, a something the, the, the fantasy equivalent thereof. And uh, uh, the, the inspector can tell from the skill levels of the characters, for example, what's publicly known, uh, and the inspector learns this stuff publicly as more and more missions are undertaken, more and more evidence is left behind. The inspector says there are only three people in the world who could have stolen that painting. And then they have to say, well, I know one of them has an alibi, and one of them is this player character, and the other one is that other player character. And so the player characters start making decisions about, well, I'd love to steal the Mona Lisa, not just for my reputation, but for the money, or not just for the money, but for my reputation. And then they say, but I can't move it. I can't sell it. Because if anybody knows roughly where it went, I don't know that the person I sell it to isn't going to just turn me in for the bounty on my head as well. There's a whole social network mechanic from your skills that your skills indicate both your knowledge, gumshoe style, and your uh, 
placement in a social network about that skill. So if you're trained in art, you know how to appraise art, mm-hmm. and you know people who will buy stolen art. But And the more points you have, the more the wider your network. But the inspector moves back through that network towards you to find out, hey, Eddie, who stole the Mona Lisa? I'm not talking. And then eventually uh, uh, the inspector gets a turn between missions, and they can essentially make Eddie talk. And that will move the inspector one step closer to you, depending on how good your network is. So the inspector sounds like he's basically a, a, a ticking time bomb. He's a... Right. Yeah. Uh, and the question becomes, this is, and it influences then how the characters spend their XP because they can essentially expand their network so they can say, I'm going to put somebody between me and Eddie so that when the inspector turns Eddie, he doesn't just catch me next week. Uh, but the, the inspector is not a force, it's a person. So they're still, you, they can be gotten to. So if the players literally get to the inspector and have a role-playing scene, mm-hmm. they might have a situation in which they say, so what is it going to cost to make this go away? And so we still have the RPG. It's not just that board game playing being played in the background. Mm-hmm. It's an RPG element that that takes that ticking time. It's like a, it, what is it? It's like a web of fuses. Mm-hmm. And so you light the fuse and you don't know which route it's going to take before it reaches you. And so the part of the question is, when do I retire from this job and end the campaign? And when do I decide I've had enough money? And that, which leads to a question that once you have a ton of money in this feudal society, when if when do thieves start stealing from you? So, so it's kind of a push your luck sort of thing. A little bit, yeah, yeah. So, what kind of settings fascinate you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm actually not as into lately super finely uh, detailed or or uh, uh, pinned down settings as might as it might seem. I like them to evolve and play. I like them to develop more and play. I mean, I, I love those sorts of things, but I tend not to play in like, uh, for example, I love The One Ring as an RPG. I think it's a great game. Um, I don't play in it a whole lot, literally, uh, because Middle Earth is so well documented. Um, so what I like in settings is a bit of room to maneuver. I like an atomic structure so that I can, we have lots of details, but that they're not laid out in such a fashion that the outcome of certain player decisions is obvious. So what I want is a system where a player can say, uh, so what happens if, if I uh, have to kill to defend myself in this fantasy city? And the answer is, and everybody who kills themselves is automatically detected by the seers and then put in jail. And you go, so there's not really a story there because we know the outcome. I want something that says, uh, seers might be able to detect you, and this is what happens if they do, and this is Russell, Russell with bribes costs. And it can get very nuanced, but it can also just create the, the structure, the feeling that says, uh, the system isn't perfect, wherever this fantasy setting is, it's alive. Um, and it gives me feelings like if I walk down the street of this fantasy city, what am I going to see and hear and smell? Uh, uh, what, what are the streets made out of? So I like really fine tactile details so that I can deploy them gradually over the course of play. And so they help players be inspired to figure out, well, if, if the buildings are made out of stucco, then I can, I can figure roughly what they feel like and what it might be like inside and how, you know, I have a sense of what it's like to decorate them or what the light is like or if they're Adobe or, you know, whatever. Um, uh, uh, the ability to extrapolate and then add into a world to me is really important. And that doesn't necessarily come at the expense of detail, uh, but it does often come at the expense of detail in the practicality sense of how many words and pages you can put in a book. Um, so I like, I like games, well, like I love, I mean, Fiasco, for example, obviously, where mm. you can make up so much on the fly and very little is nailed down. But Fiasco benefits greatly from play sets that assume that we can open Wikipedia and say, yeah, so we're playing on the Titanic, and I'm just curious, how many decks was the Titanic? And you can either not care and just make it up, which is totally cool, or you can check Wikipedia, and wh- why would you put that information in the place? It doesn't have to be there. It's everywhere. So a big part of it is also that, that what I like, in se- I'm a much more, I'm a bigger fan of secondary worlds than, than say, uh, Ken and Robin are, um, uh, both, though both of whom have an appreciation, but Ken is, you know, a historian and a, uh, 
a cultist and a, and a lore master of the, of the highest order. And uh, I really like secondary worlds, but I like them to have roots. I like them to be able to, to reveal how they connect to the real world so that I can play the role of the world builder even when I'm just being the DM. Even if it's not my campaign setting, I can say, I can pretend to be Tolkien in addition to pretending to be a, an orc. So, with your fascination with second worlds, yeah. um, it sounds like to me you prefer more of a sort of like a human-centric sort of world versus different races. I, I generally do. That's true. I'm a, uh, uh, part of it is because I like players playing humans in odd circumstances. I like the humanity to be a uh, part of the handhold that we have for a character. Um, and this is interesting that in Tolkien, for example, the elves and dwarves, are, or in so much of D&D, uh, the characters are human enough that it does, that's not a problem uh, for me. Um, and I like the occasional, and part of this because I'm, again, a child of Star Trek, I like the occasional really alien alien. Uh, but in a cast of player characters, I, I like as many humans as possible, and then, you know, one or two uh, aliens or, or, or uh, robots or what have you. Um, and part of that is just because the audience is all humans. Um, and uh, uh, I'm kind of a dramatist, as, I guess, as much as I'm anything. And so humanity and the complexity, the stuff that we wrestle with as people mm -hmm. um, is kind of limitless. We're always going to be wrestling with this stuff. We're never going to solve the human situation just in terms of, so what does it mean to be human? We can ask that question for as long as there are people. Because even if we figure it out, we're going to have a new generation of people who haven't figured it out yet. We all have to go through that, that question process. And I think one of the benefits of role-playing is the ability to build empathy and the ability to build sympathy with other humans. And the more of that time that we spend building it with people who bear no resemblance to anything in reality can be great for the imagination and it can be a great uh, uh, imaginary exercise and a great process in creativity. Uh, but I think, for example, I'm not very interested in settings that have no humans um, because I want to know how it relates to not necessarily just my life, not in any kind of like moralistic or, or, or teaching necessarily pedagogical style, but I do want to be able to, week to week, have the option of saying, this time, not necessarily that I'm going to learn something, as much as I'm going to get a chance to use something I learned and use it to make a game world richer and make the play session richer for everybody. And by and large, it's a way of asking questions that have interesting answers as opposed to, uh, or I should say, myriad interesting answers so that the players can each answer it differently and then we learn about their characters. As opposed to asking questions like, uh, Will your character steal in a world where all theft is automatically detected and they will just recover the item? The obvious answer is no. I would, it doesn't work. And this, we've got stealing solved in this fantasy setting. Everybody's a robot. I go, well, then what do, what do we do? What do you really do in this setting? Uh, and then it goes back to the classic conundrum of RPGs, right? Who are they and what do they do? And the, who are the player characters and what do they do? Um, and I like generally for one of them to be highly fantastical or alien and the other one to be less so. Um, uh, and this is interesting because I'm kind of just putting part of that together right now is realizing that 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 I like those pans to be balanced in their counters, mm -hmm. but not necessarily in the notion of they don't have if if, if one tips that's fine, but you, you want to be in control of it. So I like the idea of uh, uh, emergency medical technicians trying to save aliens in a futuristic city because I can put the aliens in the what do you do or who are you, and that can change you know mission to mission, mm -hmm. call to call. But I want there to be humans, and I want to be able to players to be able to predict or imagine the city easily, so it's still an earthly city or what have you. Uh, so the more elves or orcs you add in, the more I want it to be about tangible stuff that I can look up on 
Flickr or Google image search to get a sense of. So what do, what do castles in this place look like? I guess they're vaguely, they're kind of like old Assyrian architecture, and then there's also inspired by a lot of like uh, 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 late medieval uh, Indian subcontinent designs and stuff. And so I can research this stuff and get ideas, or I can not and go completely imaginary, and that's part of that atomic structure of a setting. Um, so I like that connection to, the, to reality and through humanity and through human history, but it's also a question of if it's totally alien, I don't know how to get into the building. I don't know what the, if I can't identify what a door is in this setting, I don't know how to get into it. So, I think one of the things, uh, some writing advice someone gave once is you can have exotic characters, but it has to be in a mundane setting, or you can have right. an exotic setting, but you have to focus on the mundane characters. I think certainly, right, yeah, the, the, the more you turn one of those dials, the more, you know, one way, the more you want to counterbalance it with the other one. And it's worth noting that, for example, uh, 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 we like a word like exotic, right, which is so much about POV. Mm -hmm. um, to me, for example, the word exotic means something that I don't particularly understand, but I already find fascinating, which is not necessarily the definition of that word. But, for example, I know I have a tendency to use it for, to mean, uh, well, here's a great example, actually, is that I, I, I have some, done some study and I'm fascinated by Indian art mm -hmm. um, from the continent from uh, 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 essentially the East India Company forward, or rather backward. Um, and I'm fascinated by their art and history, but I don't speak the language. I actually don't know a lot about the politics. Um, and so I have this great appreciation, and I'm, I'm really into the style of it. But one, because I'm not an expert, I don't, I try not to bring it into design very often, because I'm, I don't, I'm going to get it wrong. I'm not well versed in it. But I'm fascinated by it, engaged by it, and I buy books on it, um, because it is so appealing and, and, and appeals to me in a, in a way that nothing, that just kind of a visceral, immediate way of, uh, I'm probably I'm a sucker for things like, uh, uh, I mean, uh, whatever. I'm a fan of elephants and, and jewelry and, and these kinds of things that, that that are that are so well celebrated by a lot of the surviving work. Um, but it's interesting because I think that that advice of the exotic versus the mundane, I've I know writers who have misinterpreted it to mean that mundane is bad and exotic is alien or something, right? And when I, to me, what it's always meant is that the mundane is relatable. And the exotic is something that I appreciate and think is great, even though I may not fully understand why yet. Or I may, like the people. My experience is when somebody talks about whether uses the word exotic, they don't. It can be used positively or negatively, and I try to use it right just to me. And in similarly, when I interpret that advice, is to say uh, exotic meaning I may not fully understand it when I set out to start this story. I'm going to do the research, but I know I want to do the research because it's really compelling. So. Okay. So. Yeah. In your other projects you're working on. Mm -hmm. Have you been doing genre stuff, or is it more of a... I do a lot of genre work, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty... Again, because of the freedom of it. Um, I've done some uh, magazine work and such that was completely re real-world nonfiction, some interviews and things like that, and I enjoy those. But when left to my own devices, um, it's not a question really of if genre, but how much genre. Um, I've written some fairly realistic, not necessarily to say hard sci-fi, for example, but there's always still enough in it that I... I wouldn't probably be able to, to pitch it as literature to somebody. It's still going to be genre. And that doesn't bother me because, uh, uh, I mean, for even as somebody who wants to write one of everything, mm -hmm. the genre divide bothers me only in the sense that it gets given a weight sometimes, I, I think mistakenly, um, when really genre pertains mostly to helping people find books they will love. Um, there's a lot of literature that contains genre elements, and there's a lot of genre that is effectively literature except we decided the characters are on another planet or what have you and, and and whether or not we decide whether or not it's literature versus genre fiction is it more a factor of which shelf do I go to look for it on at the bookstore or at Amazon or wherever and uh, and I think we see that for example in things like board games have actually adapted to this really well which is that what the game is about mm -hmm. mechanically and in its in its theme uh, 
is what is how we talk about the game. Even though the game might be deeply historical or deeply unrealistic, we don't organize games, board games, at a store like this, uh, and wisely so. We don't organize them by by categories like, uh, well, this is this game is highly historical, and mm-hmm. this game is not. They might end up grouped a little bit together on the shelves, but we don't have a literary section and a fantasy <laughs> section, right? Um, they're more grouped by, so how does it play, uh, or how easy is it for me to, which which one of these ten do I start with, um, and that's. Uh, uh, great because that, that, that in a board game that's about actual play and in reading it's about helping somebody find a story that is going to move them or engage them and ideally in a way that they are setting out to be engaged so I think the job of genre then becomes uh, I really want to read about spaceships cool so I can tell you what part of the store to look in um, I really want to read about the human condition cool I can still help you find classic literature on the topic I want to read about the human condition and Spaceships are cool. They're spaceships. That's fine, right? That's actually a little harder sometimes. And I have to start knowing about authors and things like that. So, um, and part of it for me is just that who doesn't like a good spaceship, right? So we're wrapping up. We're almost out of time here at the Adventure Game Store. Is there uh, an upcoming project you want to pitch real quick? Oh, that's a great question too. Um, You know, I've been so uh, myopic with the uh, variety of little projects that I've been doing, um, and with. uh, the monolith of Project Dark in front of me. Um, well, one of the things I should say absolutely is so uh, uh, Game Playwright Press, uh, which I'm a, a, one of the partners of, uh, we have books like The Bones, Us and Our Dice, and Things We Think About Games uh, are out. Hamlet's Hit Points is one of ours. And uh, we have a number of books coming forward, so people should keep an eye on the Game Playwright Twitter account. Um, but Project Dark is coming uh, uh, soon. We're, we're wrapping up the cards, right? We're very hopeful. Um, there's a lot of actually big progress that has happened just in the last couple of weeks, and so uh, there's new information going out electronically, and then it will be in stores, the, the stores that uh, uh, I have the right kind of relationship right now to shop to because I don't know if it'll end up in informal distribution. Um, but I, uh, uh, I know that it will be available in a bunch of the, the stores with great role-playing crowds um, that we've talked to through the Kickstarter and, and beyond. Um, uh, and then, of course, uh, I have a couple of stories in the Munchkin comic from Boom Studios, so you can find those uh, in the uh, starting with issue twelve and in the occasional issue going forward. Uh, and to keep an eye, I guess, at uh, t- on Twitter at Wordwill, I will absolutely tell you lots of stuff you don't want to know, and also what's going on with me uh, professionally. So, well, thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thanks, Chris. And uh, look forward to chatting with you a little bit after our interview. Awesome. So that's our interview with Will Heinmarch. And uh, keep an eye out for his Project Dark. And this again is the Nerds Prepaganza podcast at the Adventure Game Store.